That was a big learning experience too, was actually doing a very introspective look back at what we had done. And you get so nervous that you're not gonna have enough business, so you say yes to everything. But a big learning experience as well as a big challenge was starting to say no. Welcome to the Resilient Recruiter Podcast. This is your host, Mark Whitby, and I'm excited to be joined today by Andrea Colabella. Andrea has been recruiting since 2005 and started her own agency, Cardea Group, in 2009 based in New York City. Cardea Group is focused on assisting private equity firms, hedge funds, venture capital firms, and asset managers in staffing their non-investment functions. Andrea has placed over 800 individuals throughout her career. That's a mind-boggling number. And she is a regular speaker at investment management events. She's a member of the Pinnacle Society, and she's also an active board member of several nonprofit organizations. Andrea, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Mark. Fantastic. So we met in person at the Recruitment Coach Live Summit in New York City last October. So I'm so glad that we are having this opportunity to continue the conversation. Absolutely. It was great to meet you. It was a bit serendipitous, and I'm grateful for the opportunity that Rich and Gail invited me along. That's right. We have so many friends in common, like Gail Audibert, Rich Rosen. So shout out to uh, to them. And by the way, I if I say your name wrong at any point, please forgive me. Uh, my sister's name is Andrea. And so I've said it that way a thousand times. So I practice beforehand, Andrea, Andrea, to make sure that I get it. But You're, um, you're nailing it. You're excelling. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thank you. So tell me, how did you get into recruiting? I got into recruiting in 2005 after a failed career at trading. I was actually an assistant trader right out of school because I was a math major and moved up to Boston, was looking for a whole bunch of different jobs. The market was pretty good at the time. Found this one opportunity on Craigslist, which was with Kelly Services, a recruitment agency out in Waltham, Massachusetts, and loved what they told me. It was um, the sky is the limit in terms of earning potential. You help people find their dream jobs. You get to speak with people all day. And I honestly didn't know what I wanted to do and loved the idea of helping people find their dream job. And then I loved the idea of unlimited comp. So long story short, they didn't end up making me an offer immediately. So I started cold calling recruiting agencies and basically started interviewing for other agencies and how I landed at my first job, which was my basically the, the premise in which we um, built Cardea Group on was with this firm called Boston Networking Group. And I had cold called this one agency and told the lady there, she was like, what do you really want to do? And I said, I really want to do what you do. She whispered into the phone, you don't want to work here. And told me <laughs> and told me to call Jen Keen, who I subsequently went to work for at Boston Networking Group. And that was my first um, segue into the recruiting industry. And it was the best. Wow. That's an incredible story. Thanks for sharing that. I guess Kelly Services really missed out. Uh, <laughs> Taking too long to get the offer together. Sheesh. That's I don't actually hilarious. think they ever ended up making me an offer, by the way. I'm not even sure if they did. I guess. Huh. You're right. That's, they're lost. Well, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so what then motivated you a few years later to launch the Cardea Group? 
So when I worked for Boston Networking Group, the three owners there were fantastic. They were extremely generous. They were kind. They taught me everything I knew about recruiting. In Boston, I, well, first of all, I didn't love Boston. So I moved with them to start up the New York Networking Group. And when you're a recruiter and the, the commission plan that they had for me wasn't the strongest, you realize every placement that you make, you're giving more than half to the house. At least I was giving more than half to the house and you're doing all the work. And it seemed, you know, I want to be the house one day. So I knew pretty early on that I wanted to be the house one day. And the impetus for starting Cardea Group, probably sooner than I would have imagined, because myself and my business partner started it when we were 27 years old, um, was I went to work for another recruitment agency and Boston Networking Group taught me everything I wanted to be as a business and as a recruiter, as a manager, as an owner. And then I worked for another agency and they did everything the opposite way. So I feel like it, it was very clear to me upon joining them that this was not the type of firm I wanted to align myself with and how I want to do business. So I probably jumped ship to make my start my own firm sooner because I knew that there was a way to elevate the game and the specifically in the investment management space, which is where... I wanted to focus my career from a recruiting perspective. Wow, that's cool. So you actually had the benefit of seeing a great example of how this business should be done and also an example of how not to do it. So yes. <laughs> you'd seen both sides. That's that's actually, I mean, I'm sure at the time it was not a fun experience, but in retrospect, that's not necessarily a bad thing to realize, oh, there's agencies out there who are really not getting this right. And so there's an opportunity for me to, you know, to do this better or do this differently. Um, so that's awesome. And so in the time that you've been a recruiting firm owner then, Andrea, what, looking back, what do you think are some of the highlights or some of the lessons that you learned along the way? There are tons and it's hard to reflect. It's 13 and a half years of being an owner I think the things that stand out to me are we have always been a boutique agency. We've never been quite large. We never wanted to be quite large. And winning big accounts against retained search firms or firms that have, you know, quadruple to 10 times the amount of people that we have working at Cardea Group has been really meaningful. There was one huge hedge fund that was debating between Cardea Group as well as a retained search firm for a CCO opening and we had to come in and pitch to the head of HR, their outside counsel. So it was a partner at a law firm and tell them why they should go with the Cardea group over the retained search firm. We ended up winning that search. And afterwards I asked the head of HR, I was like, do you mind me asking? Like, we're really excited. Trust me. Um, do you mind me asking why you went with Cardea group? Because that feedback I would have asked either way. If we had lost the business, I would have asked. If we won the business, I would have asked because I feel like getting that feedback is really important so you know what to learn from. And it hadn't even struck me why that the statement we made was so impactful on her. And she said, you know what it was? Before you all left, you asked for the business. You said, if you give us the CCO search, we would be so grateful and we will work very hard on it and promise not to let you down. And the other firm just didn't ask for the business. So that was a big, it wow. seems so so small, but it was a big win for us because it was a huge, it was probably one of our biggest searches at that time because we were pretty, mm -hmm. uh, we were still doing a lot of, I'd call staff to senior level searches. And this was a big C-suite position. So 
That was a big, that was a huge win. I'm, there's a few things I want to unpack there because I think that's a great little case study uh, to explore. The first thing that struck me that is that you always ask for feedback. I do the exact same thing. When we win a new client, I always, or try and always remember to say, you know, thank you so much for trusting us, you know, to, to be your coach and tell me what was it that made you choose us and to try and learn what is it that, you know, is working. But then the flip side of that, you also have to be willing to ask when you don't get the business and not everybody will tell you, but some people do are, are you know, are willing to share the detailed feedback with you about like, why did you go with the other company or, you know, what was it that, about their offering that was, you know, more attractive to you? And I think that is a really valuable thing to be able to continue to grow and improve. Um, and asking for the business, I think like... It sounds obvious, but it I don't think it's as simple as that. I think it was the attitude that was conveyed, Andrea. Like you sounded like you were humble and that if they gave you this business, you were gonna really over-deliver, right? Because it was important to you and you really wanted it. Whereas some, I think some of the big search firms can be a bit arrogant and um you know, and we everybody knows, right, that it's the partners who win the business, but then it's the associates and the researchers who actually deliver in that kind of uh, that kind of a business. And so, you know, they obviously wanted you got they bought into the enthusiasm that you guys were bringing to that. So I love it. That's cool. We did yes, and I similarly we lost a search to another agency, and I don't know exactly which agency took it on, and. I think we knew the second we walked out the door that we had lost that search. And mm. we knew it was because we went into that meeting, that client meeting, unprepared. We knew a bit about the firm and had done some very tertiary research on them before we stepped in. But had we taken, it doesn't take that much time. And the same thing we tell our candidates before we prep them, like just take the time. We did not follow through on the feedback and the, prep that we give all of our candidates, which was be prepared. And we should have known better who their who their strictest competitors were. We should have had a better answer to why they actually asked us on the spot, why should we give you this business? And I, I'll never forget my partner, Steve, turned to me afterwards and was like, we did a terrible job. And it was on me because it was my client visit. So I, I knew it was my fault. So that's another lesson learned is You've got to practice what you preach. And we really hadn't done it in that instance. And we lost the business and we had nobody to blame but ourselves, quite frankly. Yep, totally. So um, you said something else, which was that you're pitching against a retained search firm. Are you guys not retained? We are becoming more and more retained, but at that time, absolutely not. We started as a contingency search firm and over the years have really elevated the level of searches that we're working on in terms Mm -hmm. of scope of profile, as well as seniority within the organization. And Mm -hmm. we are at this point pitching ourselves as a firm that can either do contingent, contained or retained. So we're taking on more retained searches, uh, year by year over year, but really that's been a more recent adjustment to have the the menu option of contingency mm. contained retained. 
Got it. I think absolutely that's the right direction. I'm a big believer in that. And um, so circling back to your years in business, um, what would you say has been the biggest challenge that you know, you've had to overcome or some adverse circumstance that um, has t- you know, made you question what you're doing and how you're doing it? We've had a couple of those as well. Um, initially, the biggest challenge was strictly that we actually were up against a non-compete and had been given a lot of advice before we started our firm that it could take some time and cost us a bit of money. And it ended up, you know, taking instead of one year, it took three years to get out of it. Oh my and goodness. It, instead of costing us X amount of dollars, it cost us 4X the amount of dollars. So it was very stressful. Um, it was very stressful. I'll tell you, there's nothing that motivates you more than a lawsuit that's chasing you. So <laughs> there, was, there was a benefit to it. And then I think as business owners, and again, as a boutique agency with um, a firm coming after us for every little search that we were taking on, we took on too much, meaning um, one of the things that many of the recruiters that have been on your podcast preaches specialty and niche. And we are, we're very niche in our industry, but we were doing accounting searches, administrative assistant searches, compliance searches, operations searches. So the recycling of candidates wasn't happening as much. And then I think maybe about four years into business, we did a real look back at what searches we were filling, what our percentage of fill was for each of them. And we realized Mm -hmm. that for you know, all of the searches we filled, we had a pretty good hit ratio except for administrative staff and our fill ratio is like one in 12. And it took us a long time to figure out to just like not work those searches. First of all, there is usually a minimum of four to five agencies on every search. So you're already up against a whole bunch of competition. The mm-hmm. The level of professional we were working with, it was just a learning exercise to understand that these were not the professionals that were going to help us elevate ourselves to that next level. So that was a big learning experience too, was actually doing a very introspective look back at what we had done and where our accomplishments had come from and where our failures were. And so I think it's just, you get so nervous that you're not going to have enough business. So you say yes to everything that Mm -hmm. it's been a big learning experience as well as a big challenge was starting to say no. Absolutely. That is uh, a really important point because, well, first of all, I think everybody listening should take the opportunity on a regular basis, at least say once a quarter or minimum. Like if you haven't done this for a while, at least like take the opportunity to do it now is really do some analysis and some self-evaluation of what's working in your business and what's not working. And then like, do more of what's working and move away from the stuff that's not working, right? Exactly. And uh, instead of feeling like, well, we've always done that, so we have to continue doing it. Um, there's a, a useful um, exercise that we've started doing in our business once in a while. It's called stop, start, continue. Are you familiar with that? I'm not. Terminology? I'd love to hear oh. about it. So it's basically like part of your quarterly planning process is we have like stop, start, continue. So um, what are we currently doing that we should stop doing? Uh, what are what are some things that we 
aren't doing that we want to start doing and what are the things that are working well and we just need to continue doing. And so just gives you permission to kind of say, do you know what? Why are we, why are we even doing these administrative searches? Like we don't enjoy them. We're not making money at it. We're just pouring time and energy and resources into that. And we could redeploy that same amount of effort profitably on something else and get a much higher return. So it's just, but you're so busy, right? This is the problem with being a business owner. You're spinning all these plates. You're so busy that often we don't just take time to step back and do that reflection piece. So I think that's really um, cool that you guys realize that. <clears throat> and then the other, th the, but wanting to circle back, actually, no, there's a second, there's a second thing there, which is saying no to business. Yeah. Um, what's your criteria these days for deciding what is a good search and what isn't? Oof. Uh, we've actually been through a lot of iterations of this, especially over the last two years. The last two years have been the busiest years of Cardia Group's history. And regrettably, we've said no to more searches than yes. I say regrettably because just like the fear of everything, you you worry that saying no too many times will stop or hesitate your clients from coming back to you because you've already said no for one mm. thing. So yeah. I have that fear every day right now, quite frankly, because it's a little bit slower than it has been. It's still quite busy, but it's not it's not 2021, 2022 busy levels. So what has been our criteria? Um, usually we need to understand the firm. The Does their story make sense? Is it a great fund or firm to associate yourself with? What is the reputation that we know behind the scenes? Having Having been focused in the asset management space for as long as we have been, we can tell and do know some of the players we would never work with, um, as well as the firms that everybody wants to work for. So, mm -hmm. and there's obviously a big gradient in between those two. And we try mm -hmm. and parse out like where this, where these firms fall, what's the reality of the situation and why is the hire there? Is it urgent? Is it necessary? Is it a must fill a nice to fill understanding just general search urgency and then the criteria and compensation expectations. I'm not sure if this is true of every industry, but specifically in the investment management space, comp has ticked up so much for everything from staff level to C-level executives that there are firms that will call us with a search that they hired us for four years ago and the comp hasn't changed and we have to do an education. And if they're not willing to work with us or they still want to fit in that band, we'll just say listen, we'd love to try and help you, but I need you to understand all of your competitors are paying 30, 40, 50K more on the base plus 20, 30, 40K more on the bonus. So you're, you're mm. really not going to be positioned competitively in this market. So it's understanding comp, qualifications, um, feasibility of finding this this talent in the market. As everybody knows, there's a bit of a, a talent shortage. So I, I wouldn't say there's any sort of like formal matrice that we go through in terms of how we evaluate the searches um, mm -hmm. and then exclusivity, quite frankly, in a, in a yes. very tight market right now. If, if we're not exclusive or have some form of exclusivity, it's a um, it's hard to say yes. And then if you tell me you want to work with at a minimum of three firms, we, we're, and we're an immediate out. We might go a one like head to head with one other firm, but more than one other we're an automatic out at this point, which is, th that's another thing that we've changed in recent years. It was really Good. scary because we've 
you know, again, you don't want to say no to too many searches, but when you, I think what we've developed as we've grown up as partners and as business owners is we really have a value add and there is talent that we can access that the average person can access and doesn't have the 10, 12, 15 year relationships that we've had with these individuals to know them intimately from a career perspective, career desires, um, motivations perspective. So we need to start separating ourselves and, and realizing we have escalated ourselves to that next level of being a boutique and premier agency that knows this market much more intimately than the average recruiter. Video interviewing has been part of mainstream recruitment for over a decade now, but have you figured it out yet? Video interviewing certainly looks good as part of your recruitment service. It gives you the appearance of being a cutting edge recruitment business owner on the front line of technology. But is it paying its way? Are you getting more new business, more repeat business because you're using video interviewing? Or is it starting to look more like a financial drain on your recruitment business? Our sponsor and trusted partner, iIntro, has a solution for this. Their video interviewing is just one part of a complete suite of recruitment tools, so you don't need to spend a fortune on yet another tech platform. Everything you need is included in one package. Additionally, they provide training for your recruitment firm to make sure you're using the technology to the best possible effect for your existing clients, as well as how to use it to attract new clients. If you're thinking of investing in video interviewing, don't take another step until you've requested your free demonstration from iIntro. Just go to recruitmentcoach.com forward slash retain to book your free consultation. See for yourself how to use video interviewing to get a true return on your investment. That's recruitmentcoach.com forward slash retained. So that was a great uh, summary of how you evaluate uh, new searches. And by the way, we have we do have a matrix. I'll send you ours. I'd um, love to see it. If, if anyone else wants to see it, you can download it from recruitmentcoach.com forward slash scorecard because we call it Jailbird a scorecard. Okay. And actually, like everything that you said was on there. Uh, probably a couple of other things, but the one biggie that I am a huge believer of is the exclusivity. Like how committed, is this a mutually committed search? And um, <clears throat> I have uh, a client that I worked with for years and years and years and years, and they track everything. Um, and they're really diligent with their their metrics. And they have, I think they have about 300 recruiters something like that. And I started working with them when there was 15 uh, people. Wow. And so they have a lot of data and they have, and they, they like really interrogate this data, determine what the success factors are. And they've identified that the number one factor that determines the likelihood of filling uh, any particular job is client commitment over everything else. If you've got it exclusive or retained, then you know, versus if it's contingent and especially if there's competition, that's a massive difference from like an 80% chance of success to like a 15%, you know, or, you know, in that sort of range. So like, that's something which we really, in our, in our coaching program, we want everybody to be ideally retained, but if not to at least be working exclusively. Um, can I ask, like, because you mentioned you guys have intentionally been moving in that direction for the last four years or so. How, what does that process look like for you? How have you gone about it? 
in terms of moving from contingency to more retained? Yeah. Quite frankly, we never pitched retained. We never pitched it when okay. we were younger. So that was a really quick one because it was easy for new <laughs> clients. And then yeah. with existing clients, there are firms that we have longstanding relationships with that will always work with us and will always work with us exclusively. Um, sometimes we'll ask them for an upfront, upfront, upfront container or good faith deposit. And mm-hmm. that enough is enough for us to just know that they're committed The firms that we've worked with, and there are also a good probably dozen firms that we've worked with who will have us chase our tails and search for these people and they either never make the hire or everything's put on pause. Those are the firms that we put a big line in the sand. We need an upfront because it's a repeated behavior. We just know who they are. They're going to do this and they, you know, they flatter you and tell you how much they want you to work on this search, but They've got no skin in the game. So those are the firms who put a pretty hard line in the sand in mm-hmm. terms of asking for the good faith deposit or an initial container fee to demonstrate their commitment to the search and the hire. Love it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've got a good friend in Cincinnati who's a recruitment trainer called Bill Raiden, and he wrote a book. Uh, it was a book or an audio program called... Uh, Retain Search for Contingency Recruiters or something along those lines. You can get it on Amazon and on Bill's website, BillRaden.com. Really good program. But what something he said to me is that getting retainer does not turn a bad search into a good search. So you also need to be careful that you don't saddle yourself with like feeling obligated to work on something that is not, you know, that that's going to suck all of your time and energy and, you know, be a major drag at the same time. I actually, exactly a year ago today, um, not to, like not actually this day, but in February, March timeframe of last year, I walked away from a retained search and it was painful because I poured my blood, sweat and tears into this search. It was confidential. I was conducting video interviews. I was, I presented so many phenomenal people and let's just call it November timeframe, the founder of the firm zeroed in on one candidate. And I said, I think this is a big mistake. And then he asked me to have another CFO friend of mine, friend slash client of mine, interview this candidate because it was a CFO position. And he interviewed the two candidates that I had. And my CFO client candidate also recommended not to move forward with that candidate, but he was so hard and fast on pursuing him Long story short, the negotiations got really bad. I spent my my New Year's Eve, my New Year's Day, which by the way, were a Friday oh. and a Saturday and the following day um, on, on this search and trying to pull this offer together. And it was just a disaster. And long story short, the candidate declined the search, rightfully so, quite frankly. There were some interesting things that came out of this. And then um, my founder didn't want to go forward with the number two candidate. So he put everything on hold. And then in February, he decided he did want to pursue the number two candidate. And (laughs) at this point, the number two candidate had another offer. And and he tried to put together a compelling offer, but it wasn't as strong as the now existing offer. And what he did to me was probably, it was the only time this has ever happened in my life, but I'll never forget how um, icky it made me feel. I don't know how to describe it any other way. But when I asked him, I was like, I think you need to at least offer him some sort of sign on, like a 50K sign on 
to get this over the hump. He's telling me offer is fine as is. Just give him a 50K sign on and this gets the job done. And the client called me and said, Andrea, I'll do it. I need you to pay 25K. I'll pay the other 25K and let's see if this works. And that's putting somebody in a really crummy position. And I called my buddy, Danny Cahill, <laughs> to find out what word tracks to use. And, and he said, it, it's obvious how he values you or how he does not value you to ask you to do that. And I did. I, I, I offered to do it. Um, it was, but I, when the candidate ultimately ended up declining because there were some other circumstances that came to be, um, upon his declining of the offer, I bowed out of that search and I, I had to say to that founder, I said, I appreciate this opportunity to have worked with you, but your most recent actions um, demonstrated to me how little you value the work that I've put into this. Because at this point, it was eight months into the search. Oh, um, he had oh. also, yeah, there were a whole other set of circumstances. He, I, I had to have a surgery and he called me the day of my surgery knowing I was going to be out. It was like, he was just very disrespectful, but oh. it was hard. You just need to know when to walk away and retain surgery included. Yeah, absolutely. Having those boundaries in place and, you know, respect and um, there's certain non-negotiables, right? Which are more values-based rather than like terms of business-based and, you know, having mutual respect with a, with a client and um, just dealing with someone who is reasonable, who's a reasonable human being rather than, uh, you know, it's this sounds like a crazy client, Andrea. But uh, so I don't blame you at all. You, it's, you, it's wild. Yeah. I put him on a pedestal, though. If you heard me pitching that job the six months prior, you would have thought this man walked on water because I thought he did. And then that's what ended up happening at the end. It was just really yeah unfortunate. But you do need to know when to fold him, as they say. Definitely. Um, Look, you've done a tremendous job. I mean, you've always been a consistently high biller, but I know that in the last couple of years, you've really gone to another level. So I believe that like career-wise, you're used to billing in the 550 to 750K range, but last couple of years, you've been over a million. Could you describe what were the changes that you made in order to level up your practice? Sure. Um, part of this are things that we've covered already. So saying no to okay. more searches that we think were probably going to be a waste of time um, mm -hmm. and getting commitment fees up front because then you know you're going to fill these jobs, aligning yourself with the firms that are committed to making the hires, mm -hmm. having the menu option, um, meaning the contingency versus contained versus retained model, I think is really mm -hmm. helped because if somebody is going to go contingency, that is the highest fee percentage that we will charge. Mm, and okay. so that alone levels up your billings like on a specific mm -hmm. search. And that was a big one. Uh, go ahead. Could you say more about that when, when you talk about the fee structure being related to the level of commitment? Sure. So how we pitch it is if you're going to be 100% uh, contingent, or I'm sorry, if it's going to be contingent based, mm -hmm. the fee is 30% of the individual's uh, target first year comp. Uh, if you're going to go contained, it's a, a fee upfront ranging anywhere from 15 to 20K. 
And that fee comes off of the total fee upon completion of the search. And that's at 27.5% of total first year comp. And then the retained is 25% of the total target first year comp, paid a third upfront, a third upon 30 days, and a third upon completion of the search. And, and one other thing I should highlight in there that's changed is for many, many years, our fee was based off of guaranteed comp. Mm. And then we realized that many of these firms were not guaranteeing the comp because it was included in the fee. Um, but especially in a more competitive market like we have been in, they've needed to either guarantee, which has been great. But um, prior to that, including our fee or having our target bonuses included in our fee structure increased our fee amounts by a significant margin. I think the, one of the years that we did that, our average fee at one point had been around $36,000. And then the next year it was up to $45,000. And I think last year our our average fee, don't quote me on this, but I think our average fee last year was roughly about $68,000. Wow. That's like almost double. Big big jumps. And, and, And also in that, is because we have been working on more and more C-level positions, right? So our yes. fees generally are just bigger because we've been saying no to these junior, right? The administrative jobs, for example, were probably part of that $30,000 um, average. The junior paralegals, we stopped working on those about a year ago because of the the ROI just wasn't there and the yes. candidate commitment wasn't there. So those are big, fees alone have been a huge way as to how my billings have jumped year over year. Absolutely. That makes that makes total sense. Um, circling back to your menu idea, I can't argue with success, Andrea. It's working for you. And it reminds me of Richard Rosen's fee structure as well. I think he shared a similar concept with me. I do not like offering a menu because I feel like um, clients will typically choose the least, like they'll go, uh, but I don't know, like what percentage of people, if you say, well, these are the options, how do they, how do they land in those three categories? Um, we're getting a bunch of contained searches and that enough is a, enough for me to feel very co- committed to the search as well, because that's yeah. an upfront fee. That's non-refundable. We received... I'm trying to think of exactly how many non-refundable deposits we received last year in which we didn't fill the search, but probably about four or five, um, Mm -hmm. which isn't that much, but it's, you know, we, we do still do the work. It's finally getting paid for years and years and years of work that we were never paid for. We're starting to make up for on the back end. Um, And these firms don't mind because they know there is a ton of work that goes on behind the scenes, even if we don't successfully fill the job. Um, I'd say... Like I'm going to meet a client this afternoon and I offered her the three options and she's going with 30% contingency exclusive. Mm-hmm. She just wanted to Fine. be able to, you know, have options should after 60 days we not find somebody, she can use somebody else. I'm not too concerned about her finding somebody else through or needing somebody Absolutely. else. Absolutely. So, well, there you go. It's obviously working for you. My preference is you don't give the client a choice. You say, like, you do the whole um, needs analysis, understanding their requirements, and uh, and then you say, okay, in order for us to deliver 
this you know person to you here's the solution here's what we're going to do here's the strategy and here's the fee structure and you're presenting it as this is the best option this is my recommended solution uh cuz i always want to be retained like that's the um and and i feel like if they say no to that then i might have a plan b up my sleeve to say okay well look we really believe in option a because this is how we typically work with clients and it works extremely well and we have these results to back it up we also want to build a relationship with you and so on this occasion why don't we do this and give them the option b which might be the contained search or or whatever um my mic's <laughs> playing games here <laughs> but um but do you know what i've learned andrea is that there are so many ways to do this business there's not one right way it's about finding what is the formula that works for you and and you've been incredibly successful with your um your recipe this episode is brought to you by recruitment entrepreneur Recruitment Entrepreneur are the number one investor in startup and scale-up recruitment businesses globally. They've now launched in the USA and are looking to partner with experienced recruiters who are ready to build something for themselves. Founded by James Kahn, they've already invested in 45 businesses. When I interviewed James in episode 123, he shared a case study of how they helped a recruiter to start, scale, and sell his recruitment company for $12 million in five years. That company is called Walter James and they were acquired by ZRG. Could you be their next success story? To learn more about Recruitment Entrepreneur in the USA or anywhere globally, go to recruitmentcoach.com forward slash VC. That's VC as in venture capital. Book a call with one of their investment directors and be sure to tell them that you were referred by me, Mark Whitby at the Resilient Recruiter Podcast. Once again, visit recruitmentcoach.com forward slash VC. How do you deal with those challenges, the adverse circumstances, or just the stress like this profession is, even when you're doing really well, it's still stressful because you've got the pressure to deliver. And do you know what? The only downside of the retainer is it, if anything, it increases the pressure, right? Because then you feel you're really on the hook. You have to absolutely deliver here. Um, so what do you do just in terms of mentally, emotionally to um, stay you know, balanced and to protect yourself from that stress? If I'm being totally candid, I'm not sure I have mastered this by any stretch of the imagination. So you know, viewer discretion advised, don't take this advice because I'm not sure I've got this mastered. Um, I, I actually feel that my business partner feels the same way as you about retained search. He, feel, he feels the pressure of those retained searches weighing on him. I do not. I am, I am so excited about retained searches because to me, we are committed to every search that we work on. Um, but you, there is always like an up level of commitment. And when mm -hmm. somebody really believes in me to deliver, oh, there's no way I'm failing them. Like there's, zero chance I am not going to fill that search and fill it with somebody phenomenal. So I love it. I love bringing those opportunities to market. I love telling my network about them. So those don't actually stress me out. The things that stress me out are the counter offers, the, you know, situations like the gentleman wanting to hire the wrong person, like the per wanting to hire the person that I know doesn't want the job and being emphatic about it or so 
headstrong about it, that they're not listening to all of the advice. You know, it's it's sometimes dealing with the pressure of a client that just doesn't want to take your advice, which is fine. That's not uncommon. Luckily, it's not super common either. So how do I deal with the stress? Um, Working out is definitely a big one. I feel like you've got to do some things for your physical health to like really help your mental health. Um, I have a, I'm very open. I'm an open book. Mark, you have experiences firsthand <laughs> that I will, I will share with um, most people that will listen. And I don't say that in like, I just like, I'm out there on the streets of New York City <laughs> broadcasting my problems. But when I'm dealing with people in our industry, I will share with them all of the issues I'm having. I think having a network of people that you can lean on for advice, bounce ideas off of. I'm not sharing these woes just to be heard, but oftentimes seeking the advice. And those are from people like Gail Audubur, Danny Cahill, my old boss, Jennifer Keene, my business partners here, Kim Atori and Steve Shapiro. Um, it's, it's utilizing people that can help strategize and think about the situation you're in from a different way. I think that really helps minimize the stress. And then one thing that I read once, and I wish I had um, written this quote down or looked it up before I came, but uh, there was something posted somewhere that said, what were you worried about a year ago? Hmm. And it made me, that has always made me stop and think because you worry about so, so, so many things. And like in a year's time, it's not your worry. There are certainly going to be things that are monumental in your lifetime, more health related or family or death related. But when you think about like, what was my work worry a year ago? It's really hard to imagine. I can, you can maybe pinpoint a couple of very high stress situations, but oftentimes I try and use that as like, worst things are going to happen to me in my lifetime. So I will get through this one. And the more I work and the harder I work, the less I have to worry about this one fee or this one client or this one candidate that's not getting back to me. So I try and just put it all in perspective, which again, it's not, it's not a solve all, but it's how I no, deal with it. Definitely. As a great, as a great perspective. Thanks for sharing that. Um, you had shared something with me about cutting through the noise and focusing on the clients, the calls, the clients, the candidates, and the calls that make the most sense to run a desk optimally. Could you say a little more about that philosophy? I was actually just speaking with my partner, Kim, about this yesterday Having been in the industry as long as we have been, we get sought out for a lot of advice from a lot of people. And uh, we had, she reminded me that we did this at some point in 2021 and again in 2022, which is we're not going to schedule any calls that aren't going to make us any money. And Hmm. oftentimes you're doing a lot of people favors and I will do those. I think there's also an element of, I always want to help. But at the end of the day, if you, if you can't, monetize off of these people, then you have to schedule less time with them. Um, I'm offering to do that this weekend with somebody because I don't want it to cut into my workday time. I think you just need to be, make sure that your kindness isn't taken advantage of in this industry if you are a kind person. And luckily I work with very kind people in my, in my company. So just making sure you're not taking a call from the candidate that's notoriously the worst interviewer or never going to get the job because their resume isn't that strong because you feel bad for them. You have to like move on from these people. So I will respond to every email. And if I don't respond to it, my research analyst responds to it because I do believe in the art of being kind and doing right by people and doing unto others as you would wish them to do to you. But that doesn't mean I'm always going to give them 
the gift of my time, which is, you know, they always ask for five to 10 minutes and that is never five to 10 minutes. So I just, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I won't even give them that time. I will give them the resources. I will tell them why, why I can't help them, but we're really, we try to be very proficient in making sure that we're not taking the nonsense calls that are not beneficial to our bottom line. This is really good advice. I struggle with this. I've always, you know, had that. If I could go back, I sometimes think like if I could go back to running a desk as a recruiter and get back all of the hours I spent talking to candidates who I was never, ever going to place, I would have doubled my billings just yes. from that, yes. you know, how many hours. But yeah, so it is hard. So how do you... Do you have systems or processes in place in order to protect that time so that you don't get pulled into, you know, that that d desire to help people doesn't override your commercial, you know, um, what is actually logical and sensible for you to spend your time on? It it's very obvious if we can help somebody or not help somebody. Again, being niche is very helpful in that regard, right? So yeah. Um, if I can't, if I, somebody sends me their resume, I will, and I know that I can't help them. I will either send them my, I can't help you, but here are a bunch of resources I would suggest using in your search. It's not just a, I can't help you. Good luck. It's here are Great. some other, here are some other resources that I would suggest nice. you using. Um, yes. If it's someone that I've never talked to before, I'll just have my research analyst send that question, send that email back because when you send those things, here's another way that your kindness gets taken advantage of. They oftentimes will argue with you or say, can you explain to me why you can't help? And I, I'm i not going to get in that email exchange either. So that's why I have my research analyst do it. And then she's yes. got, you know, she's got all my templates as to what to respond with. Um, for the people that I've worked with in the past, I oftentimes will write those emails myself. There's not really a way of distinguishing it other than seeing the resume or if a candidate will reach out and say, I want to talk about this job before I send my resume, and I'll just say the resume is really to help facilitate the call. If they refuse to send the resume, to me, it's an, like there's a 98% chance that this is someone I will never be able to help because even that mm. difficultness in getting yes. a resume is just assigned it's to me It's a preview alone. of, yeah, exactly. We dealt with that a this morning already. It's, it's like, go. oh my God, no, okay. Well, we'll get back to you then. <laughs> so, you know, you can only help people as much as they're willing to be helped. And honestly, I think we go above and beyond because we, since the, since the financial crisis, I have responded to every single email that has ever hit my inbox because I used wow. to feel so badly about how desperate these people's email replies were or their thank, like their thank you notes in reply to just a response. So yes. Awesome. You've got to be yeah. disciplined on that. Definitely. I think that makes that makes total sense. And uh, the other thing that you do, which I, I love and which I 100% agree with, is actually rehearsing and planning on what you want to say with those key conversations that are critical to the success of a particular search. Could you elaborate on what you do and why you do it? That's really specific to case sensitive or case specific conversation. So for example, I had a client that I had done a ton of business with in the year 2016 or 17, I'm forgetting exactly which one. And they had approached me via email, which is always helpful because then it's you're not 
caught off guard on the call. Mm -hmm. So I was able to prep ahead of time that they wanted to negotiate my fee down. So Mm. I called Danny Cahill and told him this is what's about to happen. How do I respond to this? And he strategized with me. I wrote out a script. And when they called me to have this conversation, I had my counter arguments and I had my my points and not arguments. It was it was not an argument at all, as a matter of fact. And they were they basically took my response and were like, oh, okay, I get that. Yeah, we don't need to negotiate the price. Like we're not going to negotiate the fee down. So it's just being prepared. Similar to what I was saying about one of our biggest mistakes in our client meeting was not being prepared for that conversation, not having done our research. So I love scripts. We love scripts here. We love to understand how we're going to pitch a job, how we're going to approach a client on the fee, how we're going to tell a client how we can be distinguished or are better than our competitors. So I, I, I do believe that the power of script can be helpful, even if you don't follow it to the T, you have a general outline as to how you're going to handle the really difficult conversations. Definitely. I, I agree 100%. It's funny because people, a lot of recruiters just shoot from the hip and they sort of just wing it in these really important conversations. And that just makes no sense to me. And so when people tell me, like, I don't I don't like scripts, I think you, you want to be more authentic and natural, then my response to that is, imagine you were going to give a presentation to you know, a thousand of your best possible clients. You're going to stand up to an audience of a thousand people. Would you prepare what you were going to say or would you just kind of go, go, you know, whatever comes into your head at that moment? And they go, well, obviously I would prepare. And then you say, well, why would you present to those same thousand people one at a time with no preparation? Right. And they're like, oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Mark, I love it. Yeah. It's a really good way to put it. But I'm curious, and I, I'm putting on the spot, so I don't expect you to recall the exact details, but with that scenario you just described, because that is so familiar to so many recruiters of companies want to renegotiate the fee downwards. How did you handle that? Oh, bless Danny's heart. He comes up with things I would never think of. Um So the woman I was working with is actually a candidate I placed in the HR group at this firm. And I had placed maybe about 18 people there over the course of the past year and a half. And so she had said, Andrea, we really appreciate the business. And because we're giving you like you continue to be our you know preferred vendor and we're giving you exclusives on all these searches, we'd really like to reduce the fee. And I was at 25% of either car, uh, target comp or guaranteed comp. I forget which one. She's like, we'd like to reduce the fee to 22.5% for all searches going forward. And Danny's reply, which then became my reply was, oh my gosh, Gwen, that's so ironic that you called me to discuss this because I was going to call you to tell you that we have to increase our fee because we have had such a great track record. We know your business inside and out. Normally we would be asking for retained searches on these because we know that you trust our ability to do this job, but when it's very uncommon for any of our clients to actually punish us for doing a great job. So I'm a little bit surprised that you're asking me to reduce my fee when normally you're rewarded for your great work. So I was actually going to ask you to increase our fee to 27.5%. So what do you think? And she came back and said, you know, we're just going to keep working at 25%. 
like a day later. So it was, I, I never would have done that. I'm like actually uncomfortable even saying that. It was never <laughs> what I would have come up with on my own, but that's exactly how he he cleverly helped me negotiate or counter that. And it worked. It worked great. All right. Shout out to Danny Cahill. He's, I, I've never spoken to Danny. I, I should Ever? have a conversation with him. No, uh, he's like, I know almost all the other trainers, coaches, speakers out there. Um, so yeah, maybe you can introduce me. Um, You're going to love him. So, yeah. Well, I've seen his videos and I, I, I know, you know, I know exactly who he is. So uh, yeah, I'd love to love to have a chat with him sometime. So I love that. And in fact, one of the exercises that we get all of our clients to do is to proactively look to raise their rates with all their existing clients and any new clients that come on board. And it, for part of the reason is what you said earlier, if you can increase your average fee value, you know, and multiply that together, all the placements you make in a year, it's a significant increase with the exact same amount of work. So you make more money with from the same amount of effort. Correct. But the other benefit is you're sort of counteracting the, uh, the opposite tendency because what often can happen is clients over time are going to try and erode that fee structure. And it could be a new manager or a new you know person comes along and they want to you know tear up whatever they're doing and start again, right? Um, but regardless, like I want to get ahead of that and try and increase the fees. And if worst case scenario is you stay the same, but at least it kind of counteracts the impetus to go the the other direction. Absolutely. Um, yeah, cool. Looking back over your uh, fabulous career, Andrea, are there any other lessons or um, experiences that you think could help other people who are who are listening? I, Jen Keen was my first boss in recruiting, and I find myself repeating some of the sayings that she always had. First of all, she had the most positive attitude of anybody. She was the um, the manager of my group. Everybody in our group outbuilt her. And that was because she was so generous with what she gave to people. So if you are a manager, I do believe in the value of like handing over business to your employees because it builds buy-in from their loyalty to you and their respect for you, as well as it just shows you or shows them that you're committed to their success. And Jen did that, whereas my second firm never did that. And I just, I like have so much loyalty to Jen. Obviously I've since left her, but like, I still love her and admire her so much for that. So I think as a manager, hand over business, it's like a very small thing. And at the end of the day, some of this ends up in your pocket anyways. So do that. It's a great act of good faith in the people that you really want to see flourish in terms of running a desk, always the, like the very simplest of phrases, back to basics and closest to the money. You just have to work closest to the money and get back to basics. If something's not working, you get on that phone. You are cranking out calls. You are recruiting. You are doing what the business is predicated on, which is cold calling and finding the talent that other people cannot find. So I find like those are very simple things, um, but very valuable things and the things that I think about when I'm in periods of a rut or not making things happen. Awesome. Shout out to Jen and for being a uh, fantastic leader. And it's so funny how often the 
the, like your first good boss in recruitment, like it has such an impact on like, you probably say things to this day that you learned from her. Right. And so as a manager, as an owner, as a leader, think about that in reverse, like the people who you're developing and mentoring now, um, they're like absorbing everything that you're giving them positive or negative, And they're taking that forward into their career and they're going to remember it forever. So, you know, I think it's so important to realize the impact that you have with people. And when you say working close to the money, what does that mean to you? Could you be specific on that? Yeah. Working closest to the money is like where, you know, you're going to make a placement, whether that's if you're so for many, many years, I was completely contingency based. So that wasn't necessarily working on the retained searches. That was working with the client you knew had the most compelling story, had the best opportunity to provide, was going to pay competitively. And there was a good candidate pool out there. So calling mm-hmm. those people um, on a more granular level, working closest to the money is doing the reference calls, you know, getting closed dollars on your candidates, getting detailed debriefs from them if they've gone in for final round interviews. So like that's more granular, but if you're taking it from a, I'm starting my day from scratch and I've got nothing that's about to hit in terms of a placement, it is working on the job that is closest to the money. And I think part of that is also just consistent business development, which is, you know, over the past couple of years has has lagged for me and my team because of how busy we've been. But we try to do that business development because that is also close to the money if you're calling the right firms and the right hiring authorities. Hundred percent, absolutely. And is there a, um, in terms of how you structure your day and to give the appropriate amount of time and priority to those different types of activities? Could you tell me a little about what that looks like for you, Andrea? It's uh, it really depends on what's going on in terms of client activity and candidate activity and new job orders and whatnot. So. Like on an average day, I try to do my client development calls in the morning. um, And that's anywhere from, you know, ideally like 10 to 25. Um, I I can't say that I do that every day. And my days are not nearly as predictable as they once were. And then my colleague Kim and I try and do power blocks or call, uh, we call them power hours. um, It's just a cold call recruiting. And we try and do that twice a day. And that's for outreach to people that are not active in our database who look very strong for the searches that we're working on. We try and focus on one to two searches per week and really target recruit around those. There's so much time that we also have to allocate to new candidate interviews, debriefs, preps, and things along those lines. I try and keep those calls actually as of, I think, the last Pinnacle meeting to of 20 minutes. So now when somebody is a new candidate, I used to block out a whole half hour and invite them for the half hour. Now I, it's 20 minutes. And that alone, you know, instead of getting two done in an hour, I get three done in an hour. So you, hmm. it's just, add, I, I'm trying to find strategic ways to add more time to my day because there is only so much time in every single day. Um, and then at night, so in the evenings is when I'll do more of the planning, um, the LinkedIn outreach. So LinkedIn emails, um, I try and make an, a interview, which is the video interviewing platform. I try and make a couple of those per week. Um, one of the people that's part of your inner circle, Carlo, had a great idea, which was to film all of your videos on a Monday and just have outfit changes. And so I love that to just like have a, a quick hour on a Monday where you 
hammer out a couple of videos that can be used throughout your uh, candidate recruitment or online marketing via LinkedIn. So awesome. Yeah. All right. That's a great uh, sort of summary of uh, a day in the life of Andrea Colabella. Um, Andrea, I have so enjoyed this time with you. It's been an absolute pleasure to learn more about you and how you work and why you're successful. So thank you so much for, for doing this. Thank you so much for your time, Mark. I really appreciate it as well. Thank you so much for listening to The Resilient Recruiter. If you've enjoyed the show, the best way you can show your support is to click that subscribe button. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.